Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. What makes for a classic book? Can a book define you? And is all great art inspired from a sense of place and from making sense of pain, loneliness and frustration? Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, this week I've hit the road. Tonight's show comes to you from the 2016 West Cork Literary Festival in beautiful breezy Bantry, where the best in Irish and international writing talent gave a stimulating series of chats, readings and workshops on all things books and books. This year's lineup included poets, screenwriters and novelists such as John Banville, Louis de Bernier, Sadie Smith, Glenn Patterson, Owen McNamee, Carol Drinkwater and David Mitchell. So this evening we're going to travel through books and time from Clue Bay in County Mayo to the Northern Met to Algeria and way beyond with three curious writers which took part at the West Cork Literary Festival, Kevin Barry, Andy Miller and Carol Drinkwater. Writers of tremendous energy, gusto and style. First up, it's Irish novelist and short story writer Kevin Barry. I nabbed Kevin just before he took centre stage on Tuesday night in the Maritime Hotel in Bantry. I asked Kevin for a reading from his award-winning 2015 novel, Beetlebone. He sets out for the place as an animal might, as though on some fated migration. There is nothing rational about it nor even entirely sane, and this is the great attraction. He's been travelling, half the night east, and nobody has seen him. If you keep your eyes down, they can't see you. Across the strung-out skies and through the eerie airports, and now he sits in the back of the old Mercedes. His brain feels like a city centre, and there is a strange tingling in the bones of his monkey feet. He will deal with it. The road unfurls as a black tongue and laps at the night. There's something monkeyish, isn't there, about his feet. Also, his gums are bleeding. Well, he won't worry about that now. He'll worry about it in a bit. Save one for later. Trees and fields pass by in the grainy night. Monkey's on the brain lately. Anxiety... He hears a blue, yonderly note from somewhere. Perhaps it's from within. Really well done on the book, Kevin. What made you want to write about John Lennon? He's an extraordinary person, um, iconic figure. And I can imagine it must have been really hard to get into his mindscape in some ways. Yeah, it was um, strange, actually, Susan. It 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 was kind of the setting for the book that came before he did, even though that might sound really odd. But I was going out on my bike around Clue Bay and County Mayo for... About six or seven years since I'd moved to Sligo, I'd go out that way cycling in the in the summer. And I kind of just got this great kind of um, eerie, haunted feeling about that place out there. It's an incredibly beautiful place, but it also has a kind of a hauntedness about it, I always felt. And one of the few bits of kind of arcane cultural 
information I had about Clue Bay was that John Lennon used to own an island out there. And I kept thinking about it as I'd cycled by and I'd look down at all the little islands and I'd go, I wonder which one was his. And that kind of became like a, a like a trapped wasp in my brain. You know, what was his island like down there? And I kept kind of... Um, I wrote a little radio essay about it and I mentioned it in a short story but it kept coming back and back and one day in my shed in, in County Sligo I found myself writing lines of dialogue for a character called John and I thought, I thought oh I'm, I'm in trouble here you know I'm going to try this as a novel He's a very complex character and there's been so many interesting biographies about him some have put out that he had multiple personality disorder he clearly had an amazing amount of creative energy but a fierce amount of anxiety also and anxiety about his creative self Yeah and it's um, I think yeah the, I was very careful really not to do too much kind of research in a way not to read too much of the stuff because there's so much stuff out there you just drown it at all you know if you open that wardrobe everything would fall out um you would notice very strongly that the, the material on him goes very distinctly between absolute character assassination and kind of hagiography it's either love hate and of course there's a middle ground when you deal with an actual person um but really what I was trying to do really was just trying to make a, a portrait of an artist mm. um and it could be any artist really in a in a period of creative difficulty or strife and we do know that around 1978 he felt quite blocked he wasn't really recording or writing songs um and he seemed to think that the problem in in, in his actual life was he was too happy things were suddenly going too well all his visa problems in the u.s had worked out the marriage was going well there was a new baby and he had no songs so the novel beetlebone imagines him trying to go go to his his island in County Mayo and, 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 and get into some trouble. Did you have a lot of Beatle fans come to you in the last year or two with certain aspects or some of the dialogue? Um, it's very lively, it's, it's very energetic, it's incredibly funny in parts, but I imagine some people have an opinion on what you've written. Oh, for sure. Yeah, for sure. I mean, y- you see, you're giving yourself, when you write a book like this, you're giving yourself a unique difficulty, really, because so many readers are going to open it with um, a preconception of what they think mm. he, he he should sound like um i i i i've had no i've had no i've had no um i've had no sort of attacks on me really about mm. about the way he is portrayed in the book but it's um definitely like the the research i did do really involved youtube and looking at mm. interviews and what's very notable mainly stuff from kind of us talk shows in the 70s and what's very notable is how quickly his mood seems to change as he speaks He'll go from very fluffy and light one minute to very kind of thorny and spiky, mm. maybe a bit paranoid within the course of a sentence. And to get that down on the page takes an awful lot of work and a lot of drafts and kind of, you know, hard graft, really. And I wrote I wrote an awful lot in the early drafts of just trying to get his voice mm. right on the page. But strangely, it was when I gave him a kind of a sidekick, when I gave him this character, Cornelius O'Grady, who's his kind of driver mm. and kind of spiritual guide mm. to the west of Ireland. A very charming character. Yeah. And it, then it kind of it, it kind of came to life when, I, when he had someone to kind of play off. You know, Lennon seems to have had a lot of pain and suffering going through his life, or he certainly tried to understand it all. Did writing this and tapping into his imagination and your own Mm. give you a different perspective on pain and how we all process our own pain? Yeah, I think maybe actually maybe it helps to um, clarify what we do, what we do as Mm. any kind of artists or writers or musicians. You know, we kind of don't do it because we're grand, Mm. (laughs) really, you know, we don't do it because everything is wonderful and we're very happy and all is going well. It's generally you write out of 
or you create it generally out of anxiety and despair and out of darkness and out of the, the blues and all these things are what feed into creative work and I, I wanted to, to, to give a give a portrait of the character kind of kind of coming through that as well and trying to get back into into working again um, because I, I think it's common to all writers artists musicians when when things are going awful in your life mm. you, you retreat into the work you know mm. and the work is still there for you and you can work things out through that um, but yeah it was it was and you, you, you use whatever you can bring from from your own life and personality and character into it as well when you're trying to build a portrait of someone to make it stand up on the page three quarters way through the novel there is a, a memoir piece put into it mm. it's a it's, it's very reflective and very philosophical and there's something you wrote and um, I'd like to ask you about it whatever it is that you're most scared of surfacing in your work you can be sure it's that it's nearby can you talk me through that? Because I was reading through and it made me think about John Lennon mm. and it made me think about the whole artistic process mm. and where it all is in relationship. Yeah, I, I, I think it, yeah, it's a very it's a very interesting point to pick out from 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 that it's essentially an essay in the middle of the book. Um, what I've been afraid of surfacing always in, in my work or, or in anyone's work mm. that I'm reading is sentimentality. It makes me recoil from the page and, and that makes me think it must be very close by in my work mm. if I'm so so afraid of it. And it was really interesting that that essay in the middle, it kind of came about by accident. I had, I had notes for the novel written all over the place in different scraps of paper in the backs of envelopes and backs of beer mats and tapped into the phone. And I, one day I bought a fancy new notebook. I said, I must gather all these notes in the same place. And as I started putting down the story straight about John Lennon buying this island in 1967 in County Mayo, I found that very naturally these very nice paragraphs were, were forming and quite in a quite an effortless way. And this was two years into the novel. Nothing had been effortless up to now and the more I wrote, the more I was seemed to be able to get at his character in that way, and the more I was able to quite naturally bring in stuff from my own life. So, you know, what can I bring to a portrait of someone like John Lennon? What do I have in common with such a great artist? Well, we both lost a parent young, and I started to write about that for the first time directly in my work. I'm sure it's all over my work, um, the fact that I, I, I had lost my mother at an early age. And it was, um, and when those paragraphs came so easily and those pages came so e- easily, you pay attention, you know, okay, you think this is, I knew very quickly, actually, I thought this is the emotional mm. heart of the book. Really. Well, there's a lovely intimacy to that and mm. for the reader and a very, very unexpected. I imagine some of your readers, though, weren't expecting that out of you. Yeah, and I yeah. think that for, for their reader, for any reader, mm. um, if they go with that essay part in the middle, that memoir kind of part, it, they'll go with the book generally, mm. um, What I, is, is what I found. And, you know, I did have conversations with editors about whether that should go at the end of the book as a kind of an afterward, but I felt it was very much the middle of it, that it was very much the heart of it. Um, and I felt that it brought the rest together because I think there's also, I think a lot of writers feel there's a kind of an impatience with the, the traditional furniture of fiction and how you do it and how you put all these stories, arcs and characters changing and all this old nonsense, you know. And you just kind of want to, sometimes you want to kind of show the strings as well and show how you're, how you're doing it on the page. What do you make of screen therapy? Screen therapy, well, I... I I actually went out to the island. I got a fish farmer to deliver me onto John Lennon's island, Durinish, and I, I had a go at some mm. some scream terrific. I might as well try it. I might as well be a proper method actor about this <laughs> and give it a go while I'm out there. I started roaring out at me, and I've, I've it sorted everything out. I've been right as rain since. No more, no more problems. Um, but yeah, it's great. I remember like what's interesting about all that stuff is 
the west of Ireland when it shows up in our literature is usually about the farm or the family or the small town. But when I was growing up in the west of Ireland in the 70s and 80s, it was full of freaks as well. There was mm. loads of mad hippies and streakers and primal scream communes and all sorts going on. Mm. And I wanted to write about that. And it was really nice to discover that he played, Lennon played a real concrete part in that and that he gave um, his island to a group called the Diggers, who were the first organised mm. kind of commune out mm. in the west of Ireland. So he, he had a place in the radical history of the west of Ireland and it was nice to kind of get that material down on the page you know it doesn't show up much mm. in our in our in our literature it yeah. shows up well, I thought that was surprising because I, yeah. I hadn't heard too much about it I'd heard kind of rough little sketchy stuff yeah. that you, you imagine are almost kind of these little myths but the west of Ireland was a very popular place for all sorts of experimental sure, stuff at the yeah. time yeah, it was like it was the end of the hippie trail, mm. essentially, you know, and people moved from the cities of Germany and France and, and English and, and all mad stuff going on. And it really improved the place, mm. I think, in yeah. lots of ways. I mean, what you, you had a kind of a white monolithic sort of very Catholic culture and it was grand. But then this came in and made it kind of, I think, more interesting, you know, not saying that everything that was going on was wonderful or easy or any kind of an idyllic place but it was um, it really it really got interesting about 1970 out there I think you know Do you think Lennon got peace with his past his memories his parents and the things that he was carrying because whether you're a fan of the music or not that type of pain really comes out through his music doesn't it? Yeah, and it's weird actually the the, the very kind of last record the double fantasy thing it's kind of his most mainstream and kind of happiest and poppiest thing so he Mm. seems a bit almost in places, some of us would argue, unpleasantly happy on <laughs> that record. I love the really thorny, kind of early solo work where he's obviously gone through the ringer and really screeching and scrawling his way through with all, you know, and I, I, I find that really, really um, moving, actually, that work. But one of the lovely things about finishing the novel Beat of Bone was to be able to go back and listen to John Lennon and the Beatles again in an unselfconscious way for four years writing the book. Anytime I'd hear them, it was kind of, oh, am I getting any of this even... Mm any way right at all you know have I been in any way faithful to it um, so it's lovely now to be able to put on the white album again or put on the plastic Ono band and it, just enjoy it for what it is I read something about Bob Marley there recently that he said something that when he was singing he didn't feel the pain mm. do you think in any way that when Lennon was in whatever creative pursuits he was doing that ultimately was what he was trying to do stop the pain oh for sure I think so yeah um and actually to try try and try and get him down on the page, one of the things that I found useful was to try and imagine what he was like uh, before it all began, before all the kind of madness of, of the world he went into um, started to happen all around him. And I think one of the, the great ways for me to look at him in the book was to imagine him at 17. And who was he then before he was anyone, you know? And he was a kind of a shouty art college kid in Liverpool, kind of a bit drunk and recently... Um, suffering grief on, on account, of, account of his mother dying and just sort of bit all over the shop and I, I could kind of I, th- I thought I could see him like that you know mm-hmm. in, in quite a clear way and hear him like that um, I guess what was very what I should say was very helpful in me writing the book as well was the fact I lived in Liverpool for almost three years in the early zeros I'm not sure I would have had the confidence um, to do so much of a Liverpool accent on the page without those those years but it's, um, but it's of course a very Irish city as well and I was really happy, or really interested always in what happens when um, Irish kind of sentimentality again and pathos and singing in pubs and that sort of stuff moves to cities in the north of England. What does it give mm. us? And it gives us the Beatles and the Smiths and half a joy division and so much great stuff like that. Last question. 
Writing from intellect or instinct, where is it for you today? You know, I would say it's writing from place. And I used to describe when people would ask me where the the stories come from or the ideas come from. I would, I would talk a lot about dialogue and voices and, and, and all that. But I realised then when I look back at almost everything I've written, I can pinpoint a place being the initial kind of spring for it and just the feeling or the reverberation in a place making me want to create something to try and get it on the page. So a Beetlebone, it was the, the feeling of cycling around Clue Bay on wet days in May and just feeling, God, this is beautiful and this is kind of haunted as well. That was Irish novelist and short story writer Kevin Barry unpacking his 2015 Goldsmiths award-winning novel Beetlebone. Beetlebone is published by Canongate and retails for just under 12 euros in paperback or 4 euros on a Kindle. Now, one of the more lively aspects of this year's festival programme was its range of afternoon talks and presentations from various non-fiction writers, thinkers and journalists in the know. On Wednesday afternoon, I caught the playful and wonderfully opinionated Andy Miller offering his ideas on classic books. So my name's Andy Miller. Uh, I'm a reader, author and editor of books. Uh, I've worked in the book industry for 26 years and uh, I've been a bookseller. I started as a bookseller and uh, then I became uh, an editor. Uh, I wrote my first book of my own in 2000. That was a book called Tilting at Windmills, uh, which is a book about what it's like to be a man when you don't like sport, Uh, (laughs) which I don't. I like books. I don't like sport. You can't like both. Don't believe anyone who tells you otherwise. <laughs> uh, so I've done a bit of... Um, I've, d- I've done loads of different things in and around books. I love books. My whole life has been books. And um, so my most recent book, really, in a sense, is the subject that is closest to my heart and my experience, which is, is a book about books. A bibliomemoir, which was a word that didn't exist when I started thinking about writing this book, but books about books, has become a, a, a little phenomenon in its own right. Uh, in the last few years. And so I wrote a book called The Year of Reading Dangerously, how 50 great books open brackets and two not-so-great ones close brackets. (laughs) Save my life. It sounds like a sort of overstatement, that, and in a way is, of course, a deliberate overstatement. But the process that I describe in the book, which was, on one level, choosing to read 50 books, reading them, and then writing down what I felt about it, did save my life. It really reconnected me with things that I felt were important about reading and uh, the inspiration that books can give us. And I chose 50 books. I tried to be as um, spontaneous as I could, actually. I didn't write that list in advance. I kind of came up with it as I went along. But what There were two things that I realised that all the books that I wanted to read had in common. Firstly, they they tended to be books that we might call classic. Classics, great books, 50 great books. What is great books? I'm going to read in a minute a little bit what what that means or what I think it means. But the other thing that uh, I realised all the books that I wanted to read had in common is that they were all books that I had at various times in my life lied about having read. 
And I don't say that in... I don't say that in a... I do say it in a spirit of confession, but I don't say it in a spirit of seeking to deceive anybody. That's interesting, Andy, because I read there recently that up to 60% of people lie about books they've read <laughs> and that it's not, you know, Nick Hornby here, we're talking Balzac, James Joyce, the big hitters. So is it that we all want to appear quite interesting and cerebral, or is it just...? I, I can only answer for myself, really. I, I mean, my, my sense is that I, ever since I was a small child, I just love books, and I love reading, and I loved... I, I wanted to be the person so badly who'd read everything <laughs> that um, partly as a, as a result of just being, you know, good at reading and reading a lot, and also working in a bookshop. I cannot stress enough, working in a bookshop is a finishing school for anybody who wants to pass themselves off as having a wide and deep knowledge of, of fiction, that it's like I've filled my plate from the buffet <laughs> and then couldn't eat everything. You know, when I worked in, I worked in a bookshop 20 years ago and we, we seemed to sell the same books over and over again. Captain Corelli's Mandolin, The Secret History, Birdsong, Perfume and whatever had won the Booker Prize the previous year, right? Perfume was a very good book. Though. A good, perfectly good book, right? OK. Now, I... I must have recommended Captain Corelli's Mandolin literally hundreds of times without ever having read it. And I would maintain that that wasn't a bad thing to do because actually what a customer wants when they come into a shop and a bookshop, on some level they're already going to buy Captain Corelli's Mandolin. They've, they've heard about it on the radio. If they come up to the till and say to me, Captain Corelli's Mandolin, is this good? I hear it's good. Is it any good? And I say, let's say I've read it and I didn't like it. And I go, no. So you're trying to tell me you're not a cheat, is that it, Andy? I am trying to tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, fa- I'm failing, which is, which is OK, because at least I'm honest, right? I'm trying to... So what I can say as a result of writing this book and reading all these books is I, hand on my heart, I have not lied about a book for 11 years. You've some interesting stuff in the book <laughs> on what makes a classic. I might get you to do a quick reading if that's OK. OK, so this is a little bit from the introduction of the book about trying to it's one of those lovely things about trying to when you look at an object the longer you look at it the less you can understand about it right and the phrase great book the more I thought about it I'm, the more I realized that could mean anything so I'm going to re- just read uh, a short passage about trying to tell the reader and explain to the reader what great books are in the context of what I what I write about what makes a great book that depends both on the book and the operator I think of Under the Volcano by Malcolm Lowry as a great book because A, I like it, and B, the body of expert critical opinion supports me in this view. But we must acknowledge that greatness recalibrates itself from person to person and book to book. To one reader, great may denote unbridled cultural excellence, e.g. the greatness of Tolstoy or Flaubert. To another, it's an exclamation of pleasure, e.g. One Day by David Nichols. What a great book. It may be that when we speak of a great book, we are referring to a pillar of the Western canon, a classic, in other words, and there's a little footnote here. Definition of a classic. A book everyone is assumed to have read and often thinks they have. Alan Bennett. Great books, i.e. classics, of this kind may be important, but they are not always straightforward or entertaining. Some, such as Under the Volcano or Ulysses, may require other great books to help make sense of them. Difficulty in a book constitutes a sort of unappealing literary masochism to some. To others, it is a measure of artistic genius. Either way, a great book does not have to be a good read to be a great book. Some books become great because the public embraces them en masse, 
Others are judged great by the critical establishment despite public apathy or even because of it. All these sorts of books feature in the year of reading dangerously, which could yet be called Fifty Shades of Great. Every single book herein may be considered great in one way or another, either because it was born great, achieved greatness, had greatness thrust upon it, was declared great by Oprah, or came 31st in a poll conducted by Take a Break magazine or the Literary Review to find the greatest books of all time. And this even applies to the two not-so-great ones. I hope that's clear. So you can see, in terms of the definition of the books that I wanted to read, you know, on one level I did read... Anna Karenina and War and Peace, and we would think of those comfortably as one sort of great book. But on another level, I read On the Road by Kerouac, which at one period we never would have considered a great book. Or right? let's say Philip Roth. Yeah, or let's say Philip Roth. Absolutely. Yeah, I love Roth. Those are great books in all the senses I've just been talking about. But great, great books don't have to necessarily come from the Russian canon. Yes, I'm very, um, I'm very inspired by Douglas Adams, actually. Uh, Douglas Adams, it seems to me that those books, certainly the first three Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy books, are underrated as works of literature. Why do you think that is, though? Is it just it's that because, snobbery, is it? Yeah, yes. There's two reasons, because they're A, popular, and B, funny. And funny, people don't trust funny. But Dickens was popular, and he's a classic writer. Yeah. But Dickens, as you will know, there is a, a, a long and unhappy tradition of snobbery against Dickens particularly uh, the modernists, particularly T.S. Eliot, Virginia Woolf, go and see what they said about Dickens. They hated Dickens, and they hated Dickens partly because they felt he was... Virginia Woolf called him one of the preachers or the teachers, and she saw that kind of didacticism as necessarily second-rate. Not bad, but, but, but the pure artist, is, in her terms, would be... George Eliot. But some people come to books for that didactic realm, for that sense of learning and teaching about the world, or for that moral instruction of sorts. Yes, they do. That's absolutely right. And and I think you can see that even now. I mean, I talk a lot about We Need to Talk About Kevin by Lionel Shriver, which is a book that I've never read. See, I'm not lying about it. I do talk about it. I have a terrible honesty. And so I'm not talking about the contents of the book. I haven't read the contents of the book. I don't know. But I am fascinated about the way other people talk about that particular book, how people relate to that book, how they feel they want to use it to express how they feel about their children, how they feel about problems with children in society, how they feel about violence in society, right? They're seeking to draw a lesson from a novel which indeed is probably a very good novel. I hear very good things about it. But, you know, they're not seeking merely to be entertained by it, are they? So, Andy, now that we're all confessing what we've read and what we haven't read, (laughs) um, I'll put my hand up and say, I haven't read Absolute Beginners. Can you tell me about it? Because it (laughs) sounds fascinating. Okay, so Absolute Beginners is a novel by Colin McInnes. It was published in the late 1950s in the UK, and it's a book about uh, the teenage explosion of money, life, pop music, jazz, and it's also about the race riots in Notting Hill in 1958. I read it when I was 15, which is approximately 30 years ago, and it is the only book that I would say, hand on heart, changed my life. The thing about Absolute Beginners, which is so interesting, and I wish this weren't the case in a sense, I had cause to read the book again in the last few weeks for a podcast that I was doing and um, I happened to be reading it 
during the referendum and then the referendum result in the UK and then what's been happening in the UK with uh, the upturn in racial violence, racially motivated crimes. And Absolute Beginners is, I wish it didn't feel so relevant mm. and I wish when one read it, what's treated actually with a degree of optimism yeah. by McInnes in 1959 seems almost futile now. It's, it, it's a very inspiring read. I have to say, it should be on the curriculum. You know, there's so little writing from a British perspective about the issues around race and about integration. There's quite a lot from America, but in Britain, set in a British, recognisable, you know, milieu. Talk to me about Michelle Welbeck's Atomised. It caused quite a stir. It won a big award here in Ireland at the time. But um, a lot of people found it very vulgar, a bit raw, and were very uncomfortable with it. Okay. I love Welbeck, right? Michelle Welbeck, um, he is my favourite living writer. And I say that now in the knowledge that... And there's a chapter in The Year of Reading Dangerously, which is a letter that I wrote to Michelle Welbeck. It was very embarrassing. It's like, almost like a fan letter, uh, where I, I just describe what it is that I enjoy about his work. And all I can say is that, the, you know, the heart wants what the heart wants. I spend my, <laughs> I spend my life going around where, where I say to people, oh, he's my favourite living writer. And people go, really? It's really? It's a great chat plan, I'd say, is it? <laughs> I'll say not, because that's one of the things, isn't it? Is he's perceived as, look, I, I'm not going to mount a stout defence of all his flaws right all I can tell you is that I read Atomised it was about book 43 or 44 out of the 50 that I read and I remember sitting there reading the first few pages and thinking to myself oh this they shouldn't this shouldn't be allowed you shouldn't be allowed to write stuff that's this funny and this true you know other people will have had a different reaction to it I accept there is much to be offended by in Welbeck but the thing that's so brilliant about him it seems to me is the combination of a sort of Eeyore-ish Morrissey-like misery and humour with a thoroughly worked through analysis of society that says we are living in a post-capitalist era where everything is commodified. Our relationships with one another are to do with worth, value, monetary value. Uh, Society is being split into individual partitions and we're getting further away from each other. And So the thing about Welbeck is, and again, I open myself up here, I don't care, if you don't find it funny, you're not going to like it. I'm not saying that's an excuse for it, but when it comes down to it, the world is divided not in between male readers and female readers, but between people who find it funny and don't find it funny. Because if you don't find it funny and you're not prepared to go with the sort of the deliberate and very French, I must add, provocative element of it, you know, the kind of épaté la bourgeoisie, he's very much in that tradition. But if you don't go with that, you're going to sit there and go... This is, this is appalling. Yeah. So I, I know I, I love him. I might get you to defend Julian Cope here, the musicologist. One of his books is on the list. OK, so one of the books on the list is a book by the former member of the Teardrop Explodes, uh, the rock singer and shaman, uh, self-styled uh, shaman, Julian Cope. Some of your older listeners will remember Julian Cope. Other people will be entirely mystified by him. He's written several books. All of them are very good, I have to say. Volumes of memoir, an incredible book called The Modern Antiquarian about stone circles, um, which a tremendous work of scholarship, you know. So there's real depth there with Cope. 
But he's also very funny and he's also passionate about the things that he loves. And I respond to that because I, I like to think I'm a real enthusiast. I'm passionate about things that I love. So I read a book of his called Krautrock Sampler, which is a book about uh, German progressive rock from the late 1960s through to the mid-1970s. He wrote it in the early 90s and he published it in an, an edition of a thousand and he published it himself. And it is very rare now because he won't allow it to be republished. Mm. And I had to um, go to the British Library in order mm. to get a copy of it mm. to read because I've lost my copy. Anyway, this is a book which is, in a way, remarkably similar, I have to say, to The Year of Reading Dangerously, in as much as it's one person's very enthusiastic mm. attempt to assess a wide range of source materials and present them as a, mm. as a whole, right? And I find there's a section of Krautrock Sampler, there's a sort of history of the, this music. Bands like Kraftwerk, who you would have heard of, Noi, Can, Amondul. <laughs> and there is, a, there is a section where he goes through 50 of these records. I defy anyone, literally anyone, to read the description of Noi 75, <laughs> right? Their 1975 album, and not want to put that book down and walk over to YouTube or Spotify or the CD player or the internet, whatever, and want to hear that record now, immediately, now, because he's so full of passion and so able to link it to how he felt about it when he was a teenager. You know, we were talking about absolute beginners. It seems to me, and you were talking about Herman Hesse, yeah. right? It seems to me that the trick as, you, as, as one gets older is to find new ways of harnessing what you felt when you were 15, when you had a record or a book that you loved, yeah. and finding and pushing forward and pushing on mm. to find those things as you get older. It's harder, it's you a, know? It's a bit like first love, really, isn't it? it yeah. But it's very hard to re- recreate that impact. I might ask you about uh, The Master and the Margarita. Uh, yeah, The Master and Margarita uh, by Mikhail Bulgakov. Uh, yes, now. Very plummy. <laughs> Very plummy. So that's the first book that I read when I was doing The Year of Reading Dangerously, and it's actually the, it was the thing that started the whole process rolling, which is that I was on a day out. Uh, my son was two, and he was in a, his pushchair, and it was raining, it was November, and I took him for an ice cream, and uh, on the way back to the station, <laughs> trudging up the long hill, there's a bookshop. And I went into the bookshop, and they had a copy of this book called The Master and Margarita, and I thought, oh, I bought Alex, my son, a Mr. Men book, and I thought, well, while I'm here, I'll get The Master and Margarita, right? And on the train on the way home, I started reading it. And because, to be honest with you, in the two years after my son was born, the only book that I'd read for pleasure was The Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown. Uh, <laughs> true. I may let you away with that. Right, true, true. I read The Master and Margarita, and I found it the most captivating book, even though... And I've now, it's now a book that I've read three times, even though I couldn't really tell you what was going on. Now, you have um, Jane Eyre, uh, there's Pride and Prejudice. I think you were slightly nicer on Middlemarch than you were on Pride and Prejudice. You kind of ploughed your way through it. One of the ones that stuck out for me was uh, Moby Dick, the great <laughs> novel of the sea. Oh, well, here's the thing, right? Like Pride and Prejudice, all right, and this drives people mad, but again, it's true. I quite liked it. I neither hated it nor loved it. I thought it was, you know, I quite liked it. Middlemarch 
which I found very hard work. However, by the end of it, I thought it was an absolute masterpiece. And in a sense, the same was true with Moby Dick. Moby Dick, here's the thing. It's like 100 chapters long. And I always say to people now, the way to read Moby Dick is to read like a chapter a day and read something else at the same time. Because... You can only understand it and appreciate it, as with Middlemarch, when you get to the end of it, when you can look at it and look at the whole thing and see how it's made and think to yourself, oh, I see, oh, I see, that's a masterpiece. But actually, the applica- you need to apply yourself to it. And I, I always say, I do a talk called Read Yourself Fitter, and I say in the course of that talk, the thing is, if you read Middlemarch and you don't like Middlemarch, that isn't Middlemarch's fault. You know, and at some level, there has to be a point where you go, you know what, I'm humble enough to acknowledge that one of the great works of literature requires me to raise my game a bit. War and Peace. I mean, War and Peace is a good example. One of the other things that I read for this book is the Epic of Gilgamesh, which Mm. is believed to be the first, you know, the remnants of the first piece of fiction ever written that we have. And you read Beowulf, I think, as well. I did read Beowulf in Seamus Heaney's translation. Magnificent, wonderful. Um, So, yes, clearly there is a... Clearly, certain texts are... contain what seem to us to be, if not eternal, Mm. nevertheless, um, ongoing truths. And you mentioned War and Peace. Mm. The thing about War and Peace, which I am always keen to say to people, is that big book that you may well think to yourself, oh, I'll never read that. Because it's sort of a byword, isn't it? The fact that you've mentioned it to me, it's a byword for the sort of difficult classic. You know, the thing about War and Peace is, it is very long, but the thing that you never hear people say about it is, it is very enjoyable. I understand now why some people read it every year or every couple of years. I want to, I want to impress upon people that you can connect with that book. So a book can define you, if you will. Yes, absolutely. And why wouldn't you want a book to define you, you know? You know, I'm willing to walk around saying I'm defined by atomised and Krautrock sampler. <laughs> so <laughs> it, I, it doesn't have to be those two books and probably won't be. But, yeah, there, I, it seems like a broad brush thing to say, but it's for everyone. You know, it's for everyone. You just do it. You go, you pick up the book, you read the book. It's yours. Andy Miller there talking to me about his book, The Year of Reading Dangerously, How 50 Great Books Saved My Life. More from West Cork after the break. Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, this week I've hit the road. Tonight's show comes to you from the 2016 West Cork Literary Festival in Bantry, where the likes of Michael Harding, Gloria Steinem, Louis de Bernier, Liz Nugent, Glenn Patterson and David Mitchell wowed audiences with a creative series of lively workshops, readings and chats. Earlier in the week, actress and filmmaker Carol Drinkwater, known to most for her award-winning portrayal of Helen Herriot in the BBC series All Creatures Great and Small, and the author of the hugely successful non-fiction Olive Farm series, gave a superb talk in Bantry House on the challenges of going green and setting up an organic farm in Provence in the south of France. I stole a few minutes with Carol on the steps of Bantry House and threw her a line from Shakespeare's Twelfth Night. Journey's End is in Love's Meeting. 
Um, I don't think journey's end is in love's meeting. I think journey's journey's regeneration is in love's meeting. I don't want to argue with Shakespeare. <laughs> Please don't think that I think that I know better than him. But I do think that um, love, the meeting of love, then offers the opportunity for all kinds of new directions. Well, of course, we found an olive farm, a ruined olive farm in the south of France, which is what the olive farm books are about. And from there, once I began to ask myself about the history of the olive, the olive tree, the cultivation of the olive, who first did it, I went to see UNESCO. They wanted to a Mediterranean olive cultural route and I said I would take that on which is sort of what I've done so I travelled all around the Med on my own um, in all the Maghreb countries, North Africa Egypt, uh, Syria, Lebanon, all those countries, and then around the, the, you know, the northern part of the Mediterranean, I did a 17-month journey in search of the history of the olive tree and the people that have farmed it and where it first came from. And what surprised you about that trip? Um, I think one of the great things that I brought home from it was, first of all, the, the power of humanity, particularly in areas where there are war zones, because, of course, I was if being in Syria, being in Algeria, being in Palestine, Israel um, those are all different forms of war zones and I think the capacity for people to care for one another came out of that trip very much for me um, the love of the olive tree of course is absolutely in their blood <laughs> olive oil runs through their veins not not blood um, and I think also the generosity and welcoming that the people showed to me and um, you've written eight books I think in the olive series there's been a lot of changes all across the areas you're talking about, whether it's Algeria, Syria, Palestine, all those areas. So it, it, must, it must shock you in a lot of different ways, does it? It's tragic. I mean, I, it, I feel it. In my, in my bones and my heart very much. Um, yes, I've seen, the, we've obviously seen the Arab Spring, which has, has tried to bring some form of freedom in certain of those areas. And that was wonderful for a while, but a lot of it, of course, has backfired. What's going on in Syria, which is a country I absolutely love, is tragic beyond words and the destruction of some of the ruins in Palmyra broke my heart um it's very hard for me to see what's happened and i th you know i started out on the um the olive root journey just before 9-11 about three months before 9-11 and i was in syria when 9-11 happened and that september and i had to get out and i didn't think i'd be able to do the journey and then i heard that blair and bush were going to go into iraq and i went to london to march against that and then i decided if they were going in i was going to do this journey anyway and i'm extremely pleased i did because what I thought at the time was that if I didn't do the journey, lots of the history might be destroyed. And I think when one looks at the images of Syria now, I'm absolutely sure I'm right. I don't suppose most of the stuff that I found while I was traveling still exists. When you think of ancient cultures and civilizations, it's so, so shocking, isn't it? I think, you know, the disregard, not just for humanity, which in itself is just heartbreaking but also for all the civilizations all the different civilizations Mesopotamia the Canaanite all these people we've just bombed it and destroyed it and disrespected it and it's it's such a crime your latest book 
the Forgotten Summer. It's set in a, um, an olive and grape farm in um, Provence. But the backstory is very, very interesting. It's about an Algerian, a French Algerian family relocating to France in the nineteen was it the early nineteen sixties? Nineteen sixty two. And, and the hostilities and they felt and as outsiders. There's such resonance to where we are today politically. Can you tell me about it? Well, of course, having travelled around the Mediterranean, uh, first of all, I got the seed when I was in Algeria for the olive root and the olive tree, the two books, and then the films. Um, I saw all these abandoned vineyards, which, of course, because the Muslims don't drink they don't they don't farm them they farm a few of them collectively um, for table fruit but that's all and the rest of them have just been left and you just see a few Berbers and their tents and a few goats on these amazing vineyards and I did ask myself what happened to these people and I thought well if a family got out because the war was so violent and it was ugly on both sides um, that when de Gaulle gave Algeria back the colonials French colonials French people who had fought against de Gaulle not to give it back because they had very good life there. Um, they had to flee and it became quite ugly. So the idea was, you know, where did they go? And I thought, well, they, some of them came up with quite a bit of money. And France at that time was going through financial difficulties because they were funding the war. And there was almost a civil war in mainland France because they were so opposed to the, this, um, the colonials fighting to keep hold of Algeria. So when these people arrive in the south of France, one family that I created, in fact, it's, it's a mother, her son and her sister-in-law, her late husband's sister. And the two women and the boy get to the south of France and buy a vineyard. They find one that's a little bit of a ruin and they decide to do that up because none of the locals can afford to buy it anymore. Uh, and of course, they're not liked by mm -hmm. the local people. So the Provencal people... They're distrusted, really, are they? They're distrusted, yes. They're, they're, seen, they're seen as the people that took France into war and wouldn't give up easily. So that's the, that's the kind of basis for for the book. It, it does have a strong resonance now because we're uh, we're now all over the world and particularly with this Brexit thing in England recently which was fought so much on immigration, you know. I mean not truthfully in, in my opinion, but we are looking at a lot of migratory um, changes in Europe particularly. And, of course, from Syria, with the destruction of Syria, which we've just been talking about, so many people are fleeing, refugees. It's up to all of us, us countries that have a stability and some kind of financial structure to, I think, first of all, open our doors and welcome people in uh, and find a way of uh, helping them restructure their lives until, which I really do believe it's our duty to try and help rebuild Syria and countries like that. I mean... Uh, we do, ha we do have to take some responsibility for this terrible crisis. I was reading about the Satif massacre in Algeria. It was incredibly shocking. Um, do, you, do you think in some way that history is coming back to haunt us within that colonial context? I or do you think that's too <coughs> simplistic to say? No, I don't think that's too simplistic. Uh, Satif is in the middle of Algeria, for those people who don't know, I'll just, I'll just give some. Satif is in the middle, and it's, it's a hill town. Uh, it was a big colonial town. And after the Second World War, because many of the Algerians fought with the Allies, and they were promised independence, and that independence by the French was not given to them then, and so they wanted to take it into their own hands. They, they demonstrated for their independence, and they were massacred. On one particular weekend, I think it was, the destruction, I think 46,000 people were killed. There were colonials killed too, but bombs, the planes just came in and bombed the local people, and it was, in fact, 
Hollande, Fran François Hollande went there last year and finally apologised. Which was a very brave move. A very brave move and a very necessary mm. move. And in the light of the relationship between France and its ex-colonies now and those who are living in the banlieue, the suburbs outside Paris and Marseille, the big cities, who are disenfranchised because their grandparents came over, they'd fought with France, they never got their, um, uh, their pensions. It's complex. But a lot of these um, Maghrebian people, that's those North African people, have a lot of resentments yeah. towards the way they've been treated by France. And that, of course, mm -hmm. we're now looking at these terrible, terrible um, atrocities that have happened in France over the last year. And some of it is seeded mm -hmm. there, you know. So it's seeded in that collective sense of trauma. It's somewhere deep in the unconscious, do you think, in some in way? In trauma, and I think also because mm -hmm. France hasn't mm -hmm. always... No, it's not just France. I don't want to single out France, but we're just talking about this particular um, war and incident that, um, you know, France hasn't actually, until Hollande went and apologised, has not taken responsibility for the lack of education to, for the Algerians when the colonials were there. You know, this uh, Ireland knows something about this when people say we Catholics can't be educated. You know, keep the man down, uneducated, and they're not going to fight. And France did behave in that way. So that it's got a lot to answer for. And it's only slowly now even beginning to talk about it. And I thought when I began to write this book, I thought, you know, this is a subject that is still taboo in France, mm -hmm. and I want to take it beyond France. I want it to go to the rest of the world. One of the interesting aspects of the book is in relation to families and family secrets and family relationships and hostilities that are carried through generations. Can you tell me about writing about that and what you learned? Well, um, the Algerian section of the book actually comes at the very end of the book. And I started that. I started, I wrote that bit first because I wanted to get a sense of who these people were and route them before I took them to France. Um, it was as I went through the book, I knew they had to have a secret because there had to be um, more than the fact that, that the local people, were, the Provencals, were resistant to them. But there also had to be a reason why they didn't feel so easy about opening themselves up and making the gesture to move towards the local people. So I knew I had to have a secret. And I was looking and researching the entire time that I was writing the book. And then there's an English woman comes with, at the age of six, comes with her father, who in 1970, wants to start selling wine into England when, you know, it was just a new thing then. People were drinking Dubonnet and lemonade and baby sham and the idea of, of having wine at the table and all of that was not something well known in England. So he says that he'll, you know, he'll sell it. So he goes to this, this vineyard and said, let me be your representative. Takes his six-year-old daughter with him who falls for the son, even though he's 12 and they're children, they become great, you know, bonded companionship and everything. So as I was writing their story, they grow up and fall in love and get married and then take over the vineyard and everything. But there was still this backstory, the haunting story from Algeria. And so I did a massive amount of research on that. I did. A, I watched a lot of films of colonials that had come out and done their hand, little handheld films back then. Uh, and I began to think there needs to be one thing, and, with, and I can't tell you what it is, of course, because that's the, the secret at the heart of the book. One thing that has troubled this family that makes it difficult for them to say, okay, Provencal people, if you won't come to us, we'll come to you. Um, and then I discovered what that was and something quite, I think quite horrific, which also in a way is like an analogy for all of what France has to take responsibility for. Did it make you want to look at your own family history and did it make you wonder about whether as a universal that all families have secrets and that once you dig down deep enough you'll find something? Did it make you 
do you just question that or do you think it's a universal that we all have and carry with us or someone's spoken memories from we carry from our grandparents maybe I, I mean I think that probably is true what's very extraordinary is that since the book has been published my mother has died and uh, in fact she died the week of publication um, and so I was selling it and thinking about the secrets and all, all the, the process within the book the storytelling within the book and then my aunt told me something about my mother quite by chance she just mentioned it to me on the telephone and I said no 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 that can't be true because she says no it is true I don't want to say what it is, and it's not relevant what it is. But I was completely shocked to learn this very small thing about my mother. And I thought, but she never... We were great friends, my mother and I, great friends. That's why it's been so hard for me. And I thought, why did she never tell me that? And I didn't go back to my aunt. I began to resent my aunt a little bit for having told me this this, this fact. And um, And then I thought to myself, well... I think maybe every family does have a secret. Maybe every person has a secret. I mean, I have a secret or one or two secrets that I don't ever talk about. Um, uh, there are even secrets I haven't told my husband, you know? So I, and then I, for a moment I judged my mother, not because she'd done something wrong, but because I, she hadn't told me this. Uh, and then I thought, well, I think we all have that right to a small secret garden somewhere within us. And I suppose all families do have that. novelist, filmmaker and actress Carol Drinkwater. The Forgotten Summer is published by Michael Joseph and retails for just under 17 euros in paperback or 10.50 on an e-book. Carol's best-selling Olive Farm series, The Olive Farm, The Olive Tree, The Olive Season, The Olive Harvest and Return to the Olive Farm is available for just under 12 euros in all good bookshops. Think travel writing meets memoir with a twist of history and culture. The perfect escape for a damp Irish monkey summer's day. Well, that's it for Talking Books for another week. I hope you enjoyed the show. All that's left for me to do now is to say a big thank you to Ronan Brunock, who helped out with this week's programme, and the lovely Marianne Kennedy on sound. 
Also, I'd like to say a big thank you to all the team at the West Cork Literary Festival. Hats off to Emo O'Hurlihy, Festival Director, and the super-efficient Jean Carney from Carney Media Communications in Cork City for all their help in Bantry this week. We've been talking books. I'd like to end tonight's West Cork Literary Festival broadcast with some insightful words from American novelist John Steinbeck. People don't take trips. Trips take people. How true. Good night. to 108.